The very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. questions you always had, the answers you were never given, the place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. to everyone around the world and a warm welcome to another edition of Veritas at VeritasRadio.com. I'm your host, Mal Fabregas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time or your truth journey brought you here, welcome home. And to listen to tonight's full interview and all of our material, go to VeritasRadio.com and subscribe. And the same thing goes for Sanitas Radio where we declassify the secrets to health and longevity so that you can unlock your full potential. Go to sanitasradio.com, take a listen, and subscribe. Or if you want to get in touch with me, have a suggestion, or want to be a guest on this radio program, just go to our website and click on the contact button. We have all heard the famous words uttered by Neil Armstrong as he allegedly stepped on the moon for the first time on July 20th, 1969. One small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Was it? Or was it a $150 billion giant hoax for mankind? To discuss this, tonight's special guest is Bart Sibrell, an award-winning filmmaker, writer, and investigative journalist who has been producing movies and television programs for 30 years. During this time, he has owned five production companies, been employed by two of the three major networks, and produced films shown on the largest TV networks. He has appeared on some of the most popular TV and radio shows, and his films have been published on the largest magazines and newspapers. And we have a more comprehensive bio right on our website. His website is sibrel.com. That's S-I-B-R-E-L.com, which is also linked at ours. And directly from Washington, D.C., I would like to welcome Bart Sibrell. Hello, Bart, and welcome to Veritas. How are you? Good. How about you, Mel? Excellent. And I've been looking for you for years, and I'm finally, finally finding you here. But I, th- I think it's very appropriate because I never get tired of discussing the moon and the fact that I, <clears throat> I don't like to give my opinion on this show because as a journalist, I like to remain neutral. But nothing that I have seen for the past 35 years. How are you ever going to work for Fox then? (laughs) You know, I know you were a huge fan of the Apollo mission and you believed everything NASA told you, but something changed. What made you question the authenticity of the Apollo mission, Bart? Well, I was about four and a half years old when they allegedly walked on the moon, which was at around 10 p.m. Central Time. So I was in bed asleep. However, my father was an officer in the Air Force, and one of the VIP privileges he got was this package of pictures, about 20 9 by 12 color pictures from Apollo 11. So he gave them to his son, and I put them up on my bedroom wall, and I had them up there for about 
10 years. So you I, you can imagine I've looked at these pictures from the age of 4 to 14 nearly 4,000 times. And as Kubrick's last film was Eyes Wide Shut, you can be looking at things and still not see them. And then at the age of 14, I saw a news magazine program on in which their guest was William Casing. He was a contractor for Rocket 9 and worked for six and a half years developing uh, the Apollo rocket, the Saturn V. And he asserted quite confidently because he was the uh, basically editor of these interdepartmental memos. So even though they tried to keep everything departmentalized to keep it a secret. You know, the one person made the glove and the door and the boot and the door handle or whatever. He saw memos from all departments would edit them. So he was one of the few pictures outside of the flight director, Von Braun and the president, who saw the complete uh, scope of what was really going on. And he read a memo that said the odds of a successful manned mission on the first attempt was one in 10,000. In fact, in the entire history of aviation, there's not a single aircraft that got off the ground on the first attempt. Certainly the Wright brothers didn't make it on their first attempt. There's probably like their 20th to 100th attempt. And even the 747 aircraft in the 70s. Now, aircraft at that time had been around for about, you know, 50 years, they had made millions and millions of aircraft. And when they made the 747, it rolled out of the hangar, a glider. They went through over 162 engines in attempts to get that off the ground, and they could not get it off the ground. Even though aircraft had been around for 50 years, and this was 10 years after the development of the Apollo project. So the only time in aviation history that a spacecraft or aircraft worked on its first attempt was also the most difficult one ever built. It's completely illogical. So I see William Casey on this TV program talking about this. And at the end of the program, I go to my wall and there are the pictures. And suddenly I look at them with new eyes and I start seeing fake backdrops and how the landscape is very detailed and suddenly, you know, is out of focus at a straight line across. I start seeing other anomalies in the picture and that kind of planted the seed. Well, uh, 10 years later, at the age of 24, I had become a filmmaker and a filmmaker's job is to make fake scenes look real. I remember showing one of my films you can see on my YouTube channel called The Passerby, a short film about a person meeting an angel. And one of my colleagues, really a more advanced filmmaker than I was at the time, said, Bart, I love the beautiful way you used the sunset out the window. And I said, well, that was really an electrical light. <laughs> so my job is to make fake scenes look real. Now, I went to a wine tasting once. And the leader of the class said something like, you know, he could take a sip of wine. He could tell you how old it was, uh, what country it came from, and what region. And I said, you got to be kidding me, but he could. So I can look at a picture, and I can tell you if this is sunlight or this is electrical light because that's my specialty. Well, at age 24 as a filmmaker, believe it or not, I was editing a project for the person who had produced the show I'd seen 10 years earlier. And I said, do you remember that guy who was on your show 10 years ago who said we didn't go to the moon? Do you remember his name? He said, no, call the San Francisco production office. I did, and they said they delete, because of archive space being an issue, all files and videotapes every 10 years. And I was days away from that information being deleted. So they were able to give me, you know, with a few days uh, out of 10 years, uh, uh, you know, safety margin, Bill's number and contact information. I contacted him, and he said, well, Bart, you're a filmmaker. You should do a film about how the moon landings are fake. I took off about six months 
paid myself a salary to research it. I found out, you know, shadows that should be parallel if they're lit by the sun intersect sometimes at 90 degrees, which is, uh, you know, definitely artificial light. I found out that two of the three astronauts very seldom, if ever, give interviews. I found out the administrator of NASA resigned before the first Apollo mission. I found out the Russians had a five-to-one man-hour in space advantage. They had launched everything first, the first satellite, the first animal, the first woman, the first spacewalk, the first crew of three, the first of two spacecrafts. They were so much more advanced. And it started smelling like there was at least a one out of four chance that they didn't go to the moon. Now, I like puzzles. I even draw mazes. And I said, uh, if anyone could find out whether he went to the moon or not, it would be me because I love puzzles. And as you probably saw from my sequel, Astronauts Gone Wild, I kind of have a relentless personality. (laughs) So knowing that about myself, believe it or not, Mel, I turned down the project initially. I said to myself, I'm a liar. Everyone's a liar. Why should I risk my life? For someone else's folly, because if they didn't go to the moon, if I start overturning these rocks, it could be hazardous to my health. So I turned it down. About five or ten years went by, and I started reading the Bible. And I realized that there is a right or a wrong. I mean, even if you're an atheist, surely rape is wrong and giving a poor person food is good. So I realized there is good and evil in the world. And that this event, you know, symbolizes something very important to mankind. Put it this way, Mel, if they could go to the moon, let's say they could, with 1960s technology, land on another planet and come back and live to tell about it, that would have a certain level of significance historically to mankind. But if they couldn't do it, and they lied about it, and they embezzled billions of dollars and murdered people to keep it a secret. You see, Mel, that is more important of an event historically than if they had actually gone. So I finally said, after reading the Bible, you know, I'm going to die anyway. And so if they didn't go, this is a very important event in human history. So I changed my mind, and I started producing a funny thing happened on the way to the moon. And then I was just doing it under the theory it might be true. And then three and a half years into the film, I'm going through the archives. I pop in a tape. It says on the screen, you know, do not show to the public. And even though I requested unedited footage from NASA, I didn't get any except two uh, reels that I got uh, by mistake or Bill believes a whistleblower sent them to me. They had a different label on them than what was the content of the tape. And I hit fast forward and I kept seeing the same shot for five minutes, 10 minutes, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, an hour, the same shot, like they're doing it over and over and over again. And it ended up being a special effect shot of them faking being halfway to the moon. And I realized, oh, my God, they really didn't go to the moon. I remember calling up Bill, panicked, you know, oh, my God, Bill, they really didn't go. They really didn't go. And he said, well, Bart, I told you. And I said, yeah, but they really didn't go. And he said, well, Bart, I told you. <laughs> what did that do so, to your paradigm? Well, first it freaked me out. I started fearing for my life because I figured that we'll never know in my lifetime whether we win or not. Just like some, you know, patriotic African American citizens thought, you know, we'll never have an African American president in their lifetime, but they were wrong. And I thought, well, we'll never know in my lifetime whether we really win or not. But I was also wrong because here I had in my house proof of the biggest government fraud, I think bigger than who shot JFK, in my house with a blind roommate and a 
two, three-year-old son, and I'm thinking, I took no security precautions whatsoever. And I'm thinking, I have proof that the moon landing is fake in my house. What have I gotten myself into? <laughs> you know, I was just panicked and scared for my life. Well, certainly. You know, just to, for people who are wondering why did I say $150 billion, is because in the 1960s, the actual cost, correct me if I'm wrong, Bart, but it was twenty billion adjusted for inflation is about a hundred and fifty one hundred and fifty nine billion dollars in today's money. Yeah, it's a lot of money. I figured it could build two million two bedroom homes. Uh, it could feed two million homeless people for their entire lives. So even if you could go to the moon, it seems like it's kind of a mental masturbation to do it anyway when there are all these, you know, more beneficial things. In fact, there's an actual audio recording of Kennedy after he set the goal to go to the moon regretting it. He said for that amount of money, we could have provided the entire continent of Africa permanently with clean drinking water, which they still do not have to this day. Well, when you think about that, the yearly budget for defense in the United States is close to $600 billion. And it has, you know, the nine, the nine countries after it combined. It's just incredible. But, you know, I'm, I'm looking here and thinking how I also was an avid, you know, I loved the moon, even when I was a child, first grade, second grade, you know, what do you want to become when you, when you become an adult, I want to be an astronaut. But then in 1974, 1975, I think it was, I grew up in Puerto Rico. And I was told that a cruise ship was coming that week with Neil Armstrong. And he was going to be coming out and talk to the media. So as a little kid, I asked my parents to take me there. So I waited outside for Mr. Armstrong to come out. Well, he never did. And ever since, I wondered, why is he so reclusive? And that was it until the day he died. Why do you think he was always so reclusive? And why did he never address his trip to the moon? Well, I was thinking about something this morning, uh, which just remind me of his little bag of tricks that was found after he died. The reason uh, he behaved the way that he did, not wanting to talk about it, was uh, because he was originally a man of very high integrity. Now, the crew uh, that was supposed to be the first crew to go to the moon was the crew of Apollo 1. And the man they had picked to be the first man to walk on the moon was a man by the name of Gus Grissom. He was most beloved by the public because one of his Mercury spacecraft, when it hit the ocean, it hit so hard, it triggered the explosive bolt backup system of the door. And when it bobbed under the water, the explosive bolts went off and the spacecraft started filling with water. And so it was kind of an embarrassing failure uh, on the national stage. And at the press conference, he further confessed that he had in each pants pocket like 10 rolls of nickels from the bank so that his son, Scott Grissom, could give these out to school children and say these nickels have come from outer space. So he was thinking of the kids. However, he confessed when he started sinking to the bottom of the ocean with all this extra weight in his pockets that that wasn't such a brilliant idea. And of course, the audience of the press conference started laughing. And then someone asked him, were you afraid? And he said, of course I was afraid. And he admitted he was human, that he was just like anybody else with a particular, you know, special skill set. And that made him the most beloved person. Well, as the Apollo spacecraft was being developed and they were supposed to have it done in about six years, 
he said, you know, we are 10 or 20 years away from being done. He saw so many schedule slippages and so much incompetence in the wiring. In fact, the day he died in the spacecraft, they could not even get a wired intercom system to work between two buildings. And one of his last words were, guys, how are we going to get to the moon if we can't talk between two buildings? And they said, what did you say? We can't hear you. And he repeated that statement. Now, he was so upset with the dilapidated condition of the spacecraft that he was preparing this huge memo to Congress, which was actually confiscated from his house by the CIA prior to his widow being informed that he had even died. And he was getting so frustrated because he would complain up the chain of command, but they wouldn't do anything because the, the top people knew they were not going to go to the moon. Either they were going to admit that Kennedy had bit off more than he could chew, or they were going to fake it, but they hadn't made up their mind, and therefore they had not informed the astronauts it was on a need-to-know basis. And so a few weeks before he died, he was an avid farmer, and in his Houston backyard, he had like one lemon tree, one yeah. grapefruit tree, one apple tree, and he had grown a lemon. lemon the size of a grapefruit and he took a coat hanger, clipped the bottom of it, stuck, you know, the lemon between it, turned the hook around and he put it on the very top of the spacecraft and without permission had an impromptu press conference where it was photographed for national television. And he became, you know, the higher ups, the generals or whoever became furious at him. He is a boat rocker and they knew the moment he would be asked to fake the moon landing, he would just tell the media what was really going on. So what they did is they lured him into the spacecraft and they burned up two other guys along with him to make it look like they weren't singling him out. I have the however many pages, two to three hundred page uh, report from this that we paid ten thousand dollars from for one of his crew members uh, widow's estate. And in there, you see a dip in power prior to the fire, meaning there was some sort of device, alligator clamped in there that was sucking power off of it, and that there was cyanide gas in there, uh, which was actually the cause of death. Because when they removed their charred bodies, they were still buckled in. Now, the very first thing you're going to do if you're in there and there's a fire is you're going to unbuckle your belt. Right. The fact that they were buckled in was proof that they were actually dead before the fire began. The fire was a method of getting rid of the forensic evidence of the cyanide poisoning. Plausible deniability. Correct. So after uh, this happened, it was a warning to the other astronauts. So Neil Armstrong steps in as the you know replacement crew, and they eventually, I'm sure, had to ask him to participate in this fraud. Being a man of integrity, I'm sure he turned them down. They bribed him, they turned him down. Even if they had a skeleton in his closet to blackmail him with, I, I doubt that they had one. <laughs> so that probably wouldn't work. Then you have to turn up the heat. So if you threaten a guy's life who flies aircraft that had never been flown before, which is extremely dangerous, I don't think threatening the life of a test pilot is going to mean that much to him either. So the only thing left would be to threaten the life of his wife and children. And under those particular circumstances, you would get his extremely reluctant cooperation. They can't allow the guy to resign after he's picked to be the first man to go on the moon. That would be an embarrassment. People will ask, well, why are you resigning? Are you afraid or whatever? He'd say, no, I just don't want to participate in faking it. So obviously they weren't going to let him say that. So the only way he can maintain his integrity is simply to not talk about it. Otherwise, he's forced to lie. Now, what I was thinking about this morning is after his death, 
his widow found this bag of equipment. You know, it's got to weigh at least 50 pounds, like a camera and a compass or rope or who knows what it was. That. Thank you for listening. To unlock the full two-hour interview, including video formats, downloads, transcripts, exclusive articles, and more, subscribe to Veritas Plus now. Gain access to our entire archive dating back to 2008. Just click subscribe at veritasradio.com. Because you don't want to believe, you want to know. Subscribe now. To listen to the rest and all of our exclusive material, proceed to the Veritas Plus member section or join the Veritas Plus family by subscribing. Click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for focused life force energy. Get a 15-day free trial today with no credit card required. And if you want to get in touch with Mel, want to be a guest on this radio program, have a guest suggestion, or have feedback, just click on the contact button on our website at veritasradio.com. Now, proceed to the Veritas Plus member section or subscribe to listen to the rest of the interview. You don't want to miss it. Because you don't want to believe, you want to know. What are you waiting for? Subscribe now at veritasradio.com.